0: Welcome to The Book Pod, the new fortnightly podcast that brings writers, books and readers together via the digital world. I'm Corrie Perkin and this is episode two. And today's guest is one of my journalism pin-ups, Laura Tingle, Chief Political Correspondent for the ABC 730 program and a regular guest, of course, on The Insiders with Barry Cassidy and Radio National's Late Night Live. She's also the first journalist to whom the outgoing Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, Turned to at his post party room ousting a couple of weeks ago, and he was having his press conference. and He said, First question, Laura Tingle. Why
1: did he say that, Laura Tingle? Oh. And welcome to the book pod. Oh, thank you, Corey. Uh, look, that is definitely a poison chalice moment in my professional career. Look, Malcolm Turnbull did it, I think, because uh, he was, you know, uh, people have been talking a lot in recent times about his relationship with, uh, with the ABC, but. Uh, He had a very problematic relationship with uh, News Limited um, and viewed them as being instrumental in his ousting. So he was determined not to give a call to uh, anybody from News Limited and uh, I think probably then ranked it on who was going to uh, enrage News Limited the most and uh, that was me. But, of course, it worked and um, so I've I've been regarded as teacher's pet ever since. But.
0: (laughs) Well, I don't think it's such a bad thing on the, on the day that he, is, he was rolled that he turns to you. who had, You've been working at the Canberra Traps for so many years mm. and I think it's high, it's high regard. Sadly, our colleague Mike Gordon would not be there, it was not there, mm. and we miss him. And boy, was I wishing to read something yeah. that he would have written he over He probably that. would have got the call other than me if he'd been there, I'm sure. Well, I think it's always a toss-up. I've always thought of the two of you in the same
1: uh, camp, actually. Oh, well, that's a high compliment, dear old Mickey. Mm. Yeah.
0: Laura, we're here today because um, you've written the next quarterly essay or the new quarterly essay, Follow the Leader, Democracy and the Rise of the Strongman. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I don't know how you get the time, honestly. Philip Adams, your colleague on Late Night Live, calls you the endlessly energetic Laura Tingle. And I think looking at your body of work in the last few months that you are. And Philip also, I love the story he said the other night on radio. He said that he thinks one of your great talents – is for hiding behind the aspidistra (laughs) that are scattered around Parliament House. And from these camouflage vantage points, Philip says you are able to pick up all sorts of juicy information. (laughs) And as he was telling me this the other night when I was in bed listening to him, I did shortle because I could just
1: imagine you with your (laughs) notebook. Is that how it works? Oh, uh, yeah. it, look, I don't want to Yes, yes, I don't want to disabuse worked, but- you of that notion, Cory because it's a colourful one, but uh, not enough aspidistras around the building, really. But there's um, Philip being creative for you?
0: Well, I think uh, we'll put it down to your thirty-five years of uh, journalistic experience and your honed news sense and your innate reading of Canberra. You know how it works—the zeitgeist. You're always onto it. I think before sometimes even the politicians are,
1: and you've got a great contact book. Of course, one thing that I'm still bad at, and I feel like I have to say this, is I usually never really take coups seriously enough uh, in the sense of that they're coming up because I just have this response which is, well, that'd be really stupid, wouldn't it? (laughs) Uh, Which most of them have been in the last 10 years. So I always give too much credit, I think, for politicians to act in a sort of rational way, but sometimes proved wrong. If the press gallery is having a whip around, let's have a bet on whether it's going to happen or not. You're not there with your money. I'm I'm not there with my money. And I I suppose I also have this general sense that I I hate the way we're played on these things, that you end up being part of the process, that once the speculation starts, everybody else feels that they've got to report it and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I just really resent being part of that. And it's such a hard judgment call to say, look, yeah, there's something going on. There's something really going on. I mean, that's a hard judgment to call. But it's also, I think I always err against being part of you know, the process if I can. I, and then, of course, what happens afterwards is they say, oh, that was all the media's fault. Well, they say it was all the media's fault or people claim credit for breaking the story. But so often they've just basically been used. I should just get over it after all this time and just say, well, it's just the way it works and, you know, get over it, kid. But um, I still just really resent it.
0: The uh, quarterly essay, before we talk about it a bit, I do have to send a bouquet to Melbourne publisher Maury Schwartz and the team at Black Ink for their ongoing commitment to this very meaningful and influential series. I think, Laura, you would probably agree with that. Mm. They published the first essay in 2001 and, of course, four times a year, Potties, an eminent Australian in a particular field is asked to write a single essay of I think it's about 25 or 27,000 words. And it can be an argument or it can be a long-form investigation. Sometimes it's been a profile. David Maher in particular Mm. has done a couple of those. Mm. Sometimes it's a call-to-arms action plan for how the community should respond to a particular issue such as climate change. And over the years, the quarterly essay has harnessed a really stellar cast of contributors. Jermaine Greer, David Maher, as I said, David Malouf, Judith Brett, Don Watson, Robert Mann – Noel Pearson, Annabelle Crabb, Waleed Ali. It just goes on. And as a bookseller in Melbourne, I can tell you these quarterly essays sell very, very well. And the really great news is I think as a member of the community, it means that discussion and debate for me is alive and well in Australia thanks to publications like these. Mm. So I think they're terribly important. Mm. But what a dinner party group that would be, Laura, if you gathered the quarterly essay alumni. And this is actually your third essay. So you did one in 2012 and then the second one in 2015 and politics has always been your thing, and you've talked at various times about what makes good and bad government and so on, but this time your SA zeroes in on leadership. Mm. Perfect timing, really, but not just what's happened in Australia. What was the premise? What was the big announcement that you wanted to make or the the statement that you wanted to investigate further?
1: It was really, Corrie, that... Uh, I'd written these two earlier essays and I hadn't really been wanting to do another one because they're really hard. I, I wrote a piece for The Monthly, another Black Ink publication last year about Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership and had pondered a lot about you know what pe- people were say, oh, Malcolm Turnbull, he's so hopeless, so hopeless. Why doesn't he just crash through and why doesn't he just do stuff and he's such a disappointment? And it just made me think about the extent to which wherever I go – to talk to people, what they want to talk about is leaders and leadership and why don't we have leadership. And I suppose I wanted to investigate that, not just in Australia, but you know whether there were things we could learn from overseas. I didn't want to just say, okay, here are the last 10 political leaders we've had in Australia, i.e. prime ministers, and rate them on a scale of 1 to 10. I wanted to look at leadership it was only really after I finished the essay that it really occurred to me that I think leadership coups, which is the term for what's happened to us so much in the last 10 years, has really given leadership a bad name because these haven't been about leadership. They've been about power struggles and – And yes, ego. And ego. And the essay is really, amongst other things, talking about the difference between Leadership of a community, as opposed to a battle for power, what power is and what authority is. The essay morphed a lot during the time I was writing it. Partly because I sort of did start with a fairly open-ended view of what I wanted to write about. Uh, I started off thinking a lot about, you know, the focus on individual leaders in our system. That we don't talk about collective government. We don't talk about the government anymore. We talk about the, the prime minister or the opposition leader. But with the extraordinary developments overseas with Donald Trump, my comparison points with uh, overseas changed. I was interested in looking at originally a range of countries like a new democracy like Indonesia, looking at Japan, New Zealand, places that we don't actually think about very much in great detail. But the story in the US became very compelling. So what I've done is I've looked at Obama versus Trump in how those two men have used or defined leadership. And then. I moved out of the sort of Western, out of the sort of Anglo world and looked at uh, Emmanuel Macron and uh, Angela Merkel in Germany to look at two very different models of leadership in uh, a European context to really give us something to think about, about not all leadership is the same, not all political systems are the same. And maybe it gives us some ways of thinking about our own political leadership and what we want from it differently.
0: The Australian uh, part of this or obviously part of the part of this essay, part of this story is huge because as you were writing it, in fact you'd probably thinking about timing, you'd probably just finished it and had to go back and re edit when Malcolm Turnbull was rolled in the party room. It just confirmed didn't mm, it?
1: Your, yeah. your your hypothesis. Yes, I was feeling much better actually after the leadership coup. In that sense, see, I'm saying leadership coup too. Um, look, it, that's right. But I, ma- but
0: not. I would I would have thought not masses of
1: re-editing no, had to go no, on. No, it, no, it was good. Uh, I actually put most of the essay in in July, but I'd said to Chris Fike, the wonderful editor of Quarterly Essay, look, I'm really tired and I'm not quite sure where I want this to finish. So just give me a couple more weeks, and we, we work well together. And he said, yes, that's fine. So I was working on that final instalment, which basically the essay starts in Australia, goes overseas and comes home again. And I just hadn't worked out where I wanted it to land. I had a couple of goes at it, but it wasn't quite right. So it was still sort of outstanding about a week before the leadership coup, how exactly it would finish, but essentially done. And the coup came along. All we really ended up having to change was Malcolm Turnbull is to Malcolm Turnbull was, those sorts of things. And it actually provided a, and I not, suppose a, Peter Dutton became more of a uh, more of a player, I guess. Yeah, you know? yeah. And I suppose there's a sort of strongman strongman element to it. They ended up giving me about an extra five days after deadline. Um, just they pushed it out as far as they could, so we could include everything and and just and nail it all down. And it actually it wasn't so much a coder, but it do, did provide a really rational ending to the discussion the events that unfolded because they you know I was able to pull the threads of the essay out and apply them to what had just happened you know that very week that we went to print it was, it was, it was good
0: I had this very uh, peculiar couple of days Laura I was driving up to Ballarat to see my daughter who now lives there and I was listening to your recording on late Night Live with Philip Adams when you discussed the essay I think it was the week of publication. And one of the things I found most compelling, and of course, given Philip's connection a long time ago with Gough Whitlam and the Labor Party and so on, you were talking about um, this this notion of the leader as opposed to a, a government. Mm. So instead of government make decisions, instead of government having a big picture, it is in fact all about the leader. You know, what are he how he's doing in the polls? Who wants to roll him on the backbench? That mm. sort of thing, and. As I'm thinking about the days, gone were the days of government and policy and ministers' big proclamations and announcements about where we should be going as a country, I then took my 18-month-old granddaughter Hattie for a walk through the Botanic Gardens in Ballarat, and there is the avenue of the prime ministers. And you walk down this beautiful path, and either side are bronze busts of all the prime ministers'. And it is really quite amazing to be in front of somebody like Menzies or in front of Alfred Deakin or in front of even Gough Whitlam and to think of what their governments achieved and why people voted for their party, mm. Ben Chifley, mm. you know, just after the war. And then you get to the sort of the Tony Abbott, Julia Gillard, Kevin Rudd, Malcolm Turnbull part of the garden and it just became about them. Mm. And it's so funny to actually see how far we've shifted to this. Is it see, social media is it what's what, what is the charisma is it the charisma of the or the 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 character of the star the celebrity that has mm. affected politics in this
1: way? well I think that's um, that's one aspect of it, but uh, I suppose I argue that there's been a whole sort of lot of contextual change you know the fact that we used to have uh, a lot of other leaders in the community. Um, The classic example I always use is churches. You used to have a lot of other institutional leadership, uh, not just political leadership. And I argue in the essay that political leadership has had all these other responsibilities piled upon it. Just at the time when uh, political parties themselves have had their raison d'etre sort of disappearing. I mean, the Labor Party and the coalition... Have terrible trouble defining who they are and what they are. I mean, Okay, you can say um, the Liberal National Parties are conservative parties, but what does that mean? Uh, 30 years ago it meant being rabid free marketers. Uh, now it means rabid market interveners, uh, but in- incredibly socially conservative ones. Uh, so I think. Not having a central organising principle that you know that you, something that you can really rally to the flag on changes the, the authority of a leader, uh, not just with the community but also within his own organisation. Uh, because people are there, it's you know to say it's careerist is a bit a bit oversimplified, but it's not a battle battle to the death between capital and labour or uh, between. You know, one principle or another it's it's a more of a mishmash uh and i think i i argue in the essay that yes it's true i mean i, I remember that conversation you mentioned philip adams was taking me to task and saying oh people are always you know fascinated by golf and i said yes but we were telling stories about what was happening in the rest of the government there was a sense that there are all these other slightly colorful people in the whitlam government and that it was a that it was a an organism. It wasn't just one person. It was, that's right. Yeah. Well,
0: well, you and I were young teenagers then, mm. both the daughters of journalists. Mm. So, so clearly, politics was at our kitchen tables, mm. and we remember all the pronouncements on election eve. We'll bring up. We'll, we'll stop conscription of young men. Mm. No one will go to Vietnam anymore. Yeah, you know, we'll make free education available at universities. They were yeah. just that's what people were voting for. They were voting off. Delivered the message, and as you also say quite succinctly mm. in this in this essay that leaders have to bring
1: followers along. Mm. And, they, and
0: sometimes the followers are un, uh, slightly unwilling. Mm. Case in point, Angela Merkel. Yeah. Yeah,
1: they, they, they have to bring followers along. And uh, I argue that, another once again, there's sort of this demand for leaders who are strong and, you know, aggressive and uh, crash through or crash. You know, we want a leader who will take us somewhere. But we don't give any brownie points to people who try to build a consensus. We are completely intolerant of political leaders or uh, politicians who say, oh, look, I think I got that wrong. Um, I've changed my mind. We actually see that as a sign of weakness. A classic example being that Scott Morrison you know, admitted for obvious reasons that he'd been wrong about resisting a royal commission into uh, the banks. But I think we should actually say, well, good on you for admitting that you're wrong. Um, so when you say we,
0: do you mean the politicians in his his or her party do you mean the media do you mean the community should we all go just go just be a little softer be a little just give our leaders a bit of space yeah
1: i don't think it's a matter of necessarily being soft but it's a matter of giving them space and i th- and i do mean the media in particular and the colleagues in the, in the party and the community i give an example in the essay about Angela Merkel who had a particular crisis within her coalition where one of her coalition partners was being challenged by the Alternative for Deutschland, the very far-right. And and this is is in her new government now, which is made up of several parties. Yeah, and it's the equivalent of the nationals. It's like the equivalent of Michael McCormack sort of disowning Malcolm Turnbull or Scott Morrison or whoever's prime minister today. It was a real threat to her and somebody who was quite wise said to me, what she will do is she will find enough sort of room and policy proposals so that uh, she can say to this guy, look – here's something that you can feed to voters that will address the sort of discontent that the um, Alternative for Deutschland are playing on. But she said she will also help get this guy out of the hole. She will give him enough grace and space to protect himself from where he's got to. And I think these are really important things that we have to start being prepared to acknowledge, you know, that it's sometimes politics is difficult, sometimes you, you have to give people the space to get out of it. An, an example I'd give is I think that both sides of politics would desperately love to be able to fix Manus Island and Nauru. I get, get the people out of there, particularly the kids, and they don't know how. And I think one of the really interesting dilemmas is how do we actually help them resolve this? And so, I don't know what the answer is, but I think it's an example of the sort of thing I'm talking about.
0: So the strong man doesn't want to say, I'm sorry. And the strong man doesn't want to say, let's all come together in a bipartisan way, and even widen it to the community, let's all do this together and let's do it quickly. But surely doesn't that make someone a strong man or a strong woman?
1: Well, it might make them a strong man or a strong woman, uh, but um, I quote at length from a book by a guy called Ronald Heifetz about Lyndon Johnson, and he gives this description of how Lyndon Johnson, who's this wily, cunning politician from the south – actually gets some of the major reforms through for civil rights in America because he knows how to work the system. He embraces people like Martin Luther King but essentially says to him in a a political way, look, I can protect you so far and you can help me so far but if you and your demonstrators march beyond a physical point on a a certain bridge, I can't protect you anymore. I can't protect you physically and I can't protect you politically but once again... Uh, Johnson's political task was also to find uh, sort of a, an alibi for some of the uh, really hostile people against civil rights uh, in that debate. But Heifetz also says that, of course, Johnson was a complete disaster in uh, foreign policy because he didn't embrace the dissident voices on Vietnam. Uh, he believed that in that commander-in-chief role, you have to just lead and everybody has to follow you. And And no room for negotiation, consensus, thinking. That's that's right. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Mm.
0: Laura, uh, you started your career, as I said earlier, at the Finn Review and you served your cadetship there and I think at BRW. So it suggests to me that politics and business has been a big part of your life. Did you – you never wanted to do what I did and be an arts reporter or (laughs) –
1: It was a complete... Or or do the food column or... Oh, look, uh, I I think I've sort of, you know, fancied myself in that sort of delusional 19-year-old way. Corrie is, you know, a war correspondent wearing a flak jacket, you know, which was sort of fairly hilarious because I'm a complete chicken. But um, I hadn't planned to be an economics writer or a business reporter. That was a complete matter of uh, happenstance. The Fairfax Cadet Intake that year was the biggest ever, I think, still the biggest ever uh, in one year. And were you a
0: graduate cadet or no, I straight was a, from school?
1: No, I, I wasn't straight from school, but I'd been out of school for a year, so I was one of 2 You were 1980, were you? Because I was 79. 81, we're the same age. 81. Okay. I started uh, just before yeah, when I was 19. The then editorial director of Fairfax, uh, Max Such, basically forced Max Walsh, who was then the editor-in-chief of the Financial Review, to take five cadets. The Finn Review had no history of taking intakes like that. Uh, so I was... I was in a really one-off situation and they took on two non-graduate cadets. I was one of them and Colleen Ryan, who's a wonderful journalist, uh, took me aside and said, you know, listen baby, if you're going to survive, you're going to have to become a specialist in something. Nobody's writing about building societies now. So I started writing about building societies. They became a big story. From there I moved into writing about finance just as the financial system was being deregulated. From there, it was a natural step to economics. And from economics in the era of Keating, it was a natural step into politics. So it just happened. I wish I'd had a grand plan, but it's just been that way.
0: And your father, John Tingle, was uh, a journalist and also a former politician Mm. too with the New South Wales Parliament. Mm. Was there much talk around the table when you were growing up about the world around us?
1: You know, my parents met in the ABC newsroom in the 50s. uh, Oh,
0: was your mum a journalist too?
1: No, she wasn't, but she worked in the newsroom. So they met there. So my entire childhood was... All about the ABC, and Dad moved from radio into television. Uh, Laura, you've come home. <laughs> I, I, absolutely, I feel like I've come home, and uh, you know, it's such an
0: interesting time. George. At such an
1: interesting time, indeed. Uh, but to me, when I was a kid, journalism seemed like a place where, and it was really only when I sort of thought about doing other jobs that I'm, I, I realised, you know, journalism always seemed to put you right at the centre of what was happening in the world. I mean. Dad went scuba diving with Harold Holt at Portsea a month before Harold Holt disappeared with a young ABC cameraman called Don McAlpine who went on to fame and fortune as a cinematographer, Uh, you know, went to interview the Beatles at their press conference at Sydney Airport. You know, whatever was happening, journalists seemed to be in and amongst it. So the world was there. Uh, it was something real. It wasn't something remote from us. It wasn't something that happened to other people. It was some something that you could get a part of and that was real and interesting. So that was my introduction to it, I suppose.
0: Our dads were never home. Gosh, didn't we live through, vicariously through their stories, Mm. like those stories? Oh, absolutely. And you have a daughter with your former husband, also a journalist, Alan Ramsey, uh, and she, you said earlier, 19 or 20, I think you said? She's 20 in October, Mm. yeah. Carol and I talk a lot about this on uh, our other podcast, Don't Shoot the Messenger, but also just when we're walking or... Mm playing Scrabble or (laughs) we've been doing it for 30 years, the difficulties of combining because media, of course, the news never stops for anybody. Mm. And if you have a child who has measles, the news doesn't really care about that. Mm. Or if you have to get home to pick someone up from creche at 5 p.m., the news doesn't really stop for you. How have you managed this? Because you have such an amazing career of Walkley Awards and you've been Chief Political Correspondent of, you know, at The Australian and then, of course, at the Fin Review and you've been back and forth doing all sorts of amazing things. How have you combined it? Well, I
1: think I've been lucky uh, in two, two ways. Uh, when Tosca was born, it was the late 1990s and particularly when the Financial Review hired me uh, in 2002, when I went back to the Financial Review, uh, I said, well – I've got a daughter um, and, you know, we're going to have to make this work. And they always did. Um, I I worked the long hours and things, but it was just as technology was making it much more possible to work at home, uh, which I did. Tosca spent much more time in Parliament House than most kids would probably ever want to do as a a little kid. I'd I'd scream out of the office, bring her in, and she'd run the office raffle or whatever, uh, you know, of an afternoon before we went home. Uh, So she was a very tolerant child. I've got to say, I I would like to think that she ultimately did come first. Uh, I, I didn't travel on, on, for work uh, until she was, really until the last couple of years, because uh, I felt that I had to be there for her. And when I went home, I tried not to take work with me. You manage it, but I think it has become so much easier as a result of technology. I mean, the downside is that you're always on call, but uh, it has meant that you, you didn't have to be locked to your desk. In the office, um, you could still work from home. You know, on days when she was sick, I could still file my column from home and things like that.
0: There's been a lot of focus, of course, because of what's happening in the Liberal Party at the moment, too few women, and why is that? And so I can only imagine, slash hope, that they are doing their own internal investigation as to why it's so hard to get women to Canberra. But when I think about the sort of lifestyles that people like yourself, and also for many years, Michelle Grattan, who Mm-hmm. does not have children, but but her challenges were different and harder, I would suggest, because she came along at a time when there were no women really in the press press gallery. It does make you think about Canberra, a tough town and tough job. Politics is a tough job. What do you think the Liberal
1: Party is doing wrong and how can they get more women? I just think that they haven't really been trying. Um, I think, uh, you know, there, there is, the party is at war with itself, uh, it's imploding and the lack of women, I think, is as much a reflection of that as it is any particular gender prejudice because I think women always end up on the wrong end of you know, these sort of battles of machismo. Uh, but I think it's been made a thousand times worse uh, for them now. They've just completely done themselves over by treating women. And I mean, the thing that's interesting is, Often, say, Julia Banks in Melbourne, uh, who said that she won't run again because she just can't bear it. You know, There's a lot of portrayal of her as you know, being a bit of a sook or not being up to it or whatever. But I just think it's a much more interesting story, which is that people like her are just saying, oh, I've got better things to do than this. This is ludicrous. I'm not going to put up with this sort of nonsense. And also, don't you think it raises
0: questions about who preps them? Who yeah. in the party actually preps them and says, look, if you're, it's highly likely you're going to be elected and this is what the life is going to be like? I just yeah. wonder whether everybody on both sides is doing their due diligence. I'm with you. I think that she's brave enough to say this is crazy. It's yeah. not normal and it's not for me.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, often what happens is it's people who they don't expect to win who run into trouble. I'm, I can't quite remember with Julia. I think probably it was regarded as fairly unlikely that she'd win that seat. So often they don't, you know, the people who are who are going for seats like that, the Liberals in particular, tend to put women into really highly unwinnable seats. So they don't put the pre- preparation in or give them the support. And there's sort of a, a, an immense cynicism in in using them like that. And, of course, there's not a great support system. I think we saw that in Emma Hussar's case about preparing people for what they're going to have to do, uh, Often. People have come in with no experience of politics or anything else um, that might be relevant. I'm not saying that in Emma's case, but it's an outcome of putting people into seats but thinking, well, they're not really going to win, so we don't really have to invest much in them. And the arrogance of some of the people, particularly running the Victorian Liberal Party, you know, no mention of any particular names. Oh, go on, name names. (laughs) (laughs) They they really regard themselves as you know pretty hot, but you know, I think they're really doing the service very bad service to their own party. Oh, Michael Kroger, note
0: (laughs) note to self. I've got a couple of uh, listener questions. We put it out there when we had Leanne Moriarty in a couple of weeks ago, Mm. and uh, we've had quite a few questions. But I'm going to actually include one from my daughter, Francesca, the aforementioned um, mother up in Ballarat, who is also a part-time journalist. And she wants to know, what's your pet hate when doing a one-on-one interview with politicians? And when I asked her what she meant about meant by that, she said, oh, Lee Sales in an interview that she heard Lee do, or maybe it was on the podcast that she does with Annabelle, Lee gets very frustrated when they don't answer the question. So is there something that really pisses you off when you're interviewing
1: a politician and they do it again or they say it again? Uh, my working presumption is that they're not going to answer the question, which is probably, you know, shows how low I aim. I suppose there are two things. One of them is when they tell you a spectacular lie. I mean, politicians... Know, lie but that's but that's okay that's just what happens you know but there's sort of degrees of lie but a lie where if you walk out of the room you can check it and find out that it's just a lie and it's I, I hate that disrespect that they they give you and through you voters that they think that they can do that and it doesn't matter that's probably my number one pet hate and the other one I suppose is just the sort of moment that I have even as a listener or a viewer or reader, uh, where they give you those pat answers about, uh, you know, oh, well, of course, we'll seek to have constructive discussions, blah, blah, blah. And you just say, look, why don't you just say, look, we're doing this and this is why we're doing it. And you might not like it, but this, these are the reasons we're doing it. And we think it's the best thing for the country. And also the Don Watson weasel words. Well, yeah, that's oh, that's a subset of the words, of words. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> me nuts, yeah.
0: Mary from Burnside, which I think is a suburb in Adelaide. I'm looking to miss Jane our Adelaidean. Yes, it is. What are Laura's thoughts on New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern? Oh, I think
1: she's wonderful. I've, I, I've been a bit busy the last couple of days, but I keep wanting to actually just watch the tape of her. Uh, tape I'm so old-fashioned <laughs> I just want to watch <laughs> YouTube <laughs> <laughs> I w- want to watch you I want to YouTube her at the United Nations and I think she's great for all the reasons that I've just mentioned I mean yeah okay yeah, babies blah 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 but I just think a few times I've just seen her just being sensible about stuff and you know, i just saying well look I don't know exactly what the answer is here but there was some controversy I'm trying to think what it was where there was some international incident, and oh, uh, about spies and everybody was saying, "Oh, it's terrible because she nobody wants to spy in New Zealand because it's so boring" or something, and I, I can't remember. But and she was just so sensible about it, and she's sort of so unfazed by things. I think she's terrific. Well, she—I saw an interview she did in the U.S.
0: when she was there, obviously mm-hmm. for um, last week for the UN uh, meeting and um, the. Interviewer, I've forgotten who it was. Asked her about what was her response to Donald Trump. The laughter that Mm. followed Donald Trump's, um, you know, I've done this and I've done that. She was very discreet and really won the crowd over. She's pretty amazing. And so I think when I look at your, when I look at the words on the on the 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 subtitle of your quarterly essay, "Democracy and the Rise of the Strongman." strong man being one word. I do think I'm going back to two words. That's what we want, a strong man or a strong woman. Mm. And I feel she is a strong woman. Yeah. She has
1: a very sort of strong sense of herself. Yeah. Well, the strong man uh, in the title really refers to that, uh, you know, the quest for some sort of almost saviour, like the Max Weber sort of uh, thing, that you want You want somebody to come and just make it all right. And I say that this is a really dangerous thing for democracy, you know, that, um, and that's, you know, Donald Trump. Uh, in democracies, I mean, you've got strong men in uh, authoritarian or, or, or autocratic states, but you know th- that quest for somebody who will single-handedly change the world, I think, is really dangerous. But we do want, as you say, strong men and strong women who are ca- can sort of not punch through against the tide of what we want, but who can stand through the sort of noise of politics. And just stay calm like Jacinda Ardern does and go, Well what's the what's the end point here? Where where am I trying to go? Hmm, a bit fog of war I suppose. But And then invite hmm. us all to go on the journey. Invite us all uh, keep us keep us engaged. Tell the truth. Uh, tell the truth. Acknowledge that you know there are some problems along the way, but just say, look, this is what we're trying to do. If you don't like it, you can vote me out at the next election. It's fine. (laughs) That's right. And it's not all about me. Yeah. Oh, Laura,
0: can you stand for Parliament, please? (laughs) I (laughs) think it's very sensible. So we have this thing, Laura, these six quick questions, which are part of our deal, which um, I did give you a little bit of forewarning about. And the first thing I wanted to ask you was whether you read Enid Blyton
1: as a child. yes. And did you have a favourite character? Because I always love asking that one too. I I can't remember. I can't remember. I I, know I read Enid Blyton, but I'm presuming it was Famous Five, but I can't remember. Second question, Laura.
0: If you had to confine yourself to three,
1: who are your three favourite authors? Uh, At the moment, or just in general?
0: Well, um, it's hard. I know three is hard.
1: Yeah. um, I suppose I can only really sort of go with people I've been really enjoying recently. Tony Jutt, historian of Europe, who I think is really fabulous. Doris Kearns Goodwin, the US presidential... And she has a new book out on leadership. She does, which I've, I'm sort of glad it's come out after <laughs> I finished writing or I might have plagiarised large slabs of it. And I have to say, if I want to choose an Australian author and somebody people might not think of, uh, I'd say Paul Hamm, the historian, who's just written some absolutely phenomenal books over the years. Isn't he versatile? He's extraordinarily versatile and uh, you know, mind-bogglingly broad in his grasp of things. I think his book on Hiroshima is... One of the really extraordinary books I'd read. And I'd I'll, I'll add Richard Feidler's book as well, Ghost Empire. I think it was terrific. Of all the politicians you've met or yet to meet, with whom would you most like to sit next to at a dinner party? For entertainment value, Paul Keating or the late John Button, who was you know hilarious and very entertaining. And, and I like them because they don't just talk to you about politics. They can talk about a whole range of things and uh, be fascinating on all of them. Do you have a favourite bookshop? Well, I sort of moved between cities a fair bit, so uh, paper chain in Canberra. Yes, actually... Paper Chain and also Muse I really like, uh, which is a newer one. Uh, I really like Muse. I don't know Melbourne bookshops as well. Um, I should say Readings because they're always very kind to me, but I like Readings. And You can say my bookshop in Hawksburn. I'd be very happy with that. (laughs) I'll I'll say it, Corrie, but I just haven't (laughs) been there just because I didn't know. Malcolm (laughs) Turnbull has. Oh, well, that's (laughs) good. Yes, well, he's a man of of, uh, bookshop taste, I'm sure. Hill of content. Uh, I love the Hill of content. It's it's a great bookshop, and I'm I'm having a complete senior moment about ones in Sydney, but uh, I, I love being in bookshops in general.
0: And if you had to describe your
1: perfect beach read or your beach read author,
0: what genre
1: or who would it be? <laughs> uh, I went on holidays uh, to, to uh, the South Pacific in, in April, in the middle of the essay, and rather notoriously took a book on Bismarck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what uh, a writer I, I, you are! I, 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 I was like, I am just, I am just hilarious. You know, you take me on a romantic holiday any day. Um, I think still something, something about history would be would be up there in the list. So you don't do Ian Rankin or some... I, I Nord, nordic crime or I, Leon Moriarty. <laughs> look, I'm I'm really t- I just I can't. It's sort of interesting. I don't read a lot of fiction anymore, and there are two reasons. Is one of them? It's a bit like watching horror movies. I'm t- I'm sort of too exhausted when I get home. The, the tension almost kills me of of reading of a reading uh, of reading, uh well, If a, you're hanging around crime. Canberra long enough, it's a horror day. Yeah, yes. so there's that. It needs that, fiction. Yeah, well, there's that, and also I sort of had this feeling about a lot of modern fiction. I feel like I'm being played with, you know, which I suppose is part of the thing, but I feel like this has just been written to get the film rights, you know. And I, I sort of I get I really start to resent it, uh, that there's this sense that people are so self conscious in the way they write fiction now with an eye to uh, the film rights and it, it sort of irritates me a bit. Laura, you have to read Warlight by Michael Ondaatje.
0: That's uh, all I'm saying. I shall do that. Next holiday Thank fiction. you for the
1: recommendation.
0: Uh, well, uh, My next question probably is irrelevant now. <laughs> Are you in a
1: book club? I'm not. I'm not in a book club, not because I don't want to be, but just because um, my life is a bit chaotic and um, I'm four nights a week now I can't be – I mean, I've even had to give up my beloved choir this year while I make the transition to television, so I just don't really have a free Another night. singer,
0: you and Lee Sales.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a great you thing. You could start
0: your own Canberra band. Yeah, Glee Club. <laughs> <laughs> I think Barnaby sings too. <laughs> oh, yes, great. <laughs> I, ha- I have a seventh question um, because you just mentioned romantic times in Pacific, and I do have to say that in the acknowledgements uh, at the back of your essay, you do say for Sam Neill... Global leader and top bloke division, which I thought was very cute. <laughs> so we all know that you know that your partner is Sam Neill, and he
1: has written a fabulous book on the Pacific. Well, he would point out that he hasn't actually written it himself personally. Well, he's all over the cover. He's all over the cover, Can but that's just a that way of, of boosting sales. Let's be perfectly <laughs> frank. Uh, yeah, no, he he hasn't written it. A really lovely woman uh, who I met uh, at the launch of the uh, documentary series wrote it. Yeah, it's based on and is a. Comp- compliment to the series that Sam's done on the Pacific which is about the impact of uh, of the endeavor and James Cook on those places and a reflection on Colonisation and uh, it's it's. I was about to say it's surprisingly good. But that sounds terrible. No, but it's it's really fantastic. Just one of Australia, and New
0: Zealand's great or great actors, and he's done a good job. And you're surprised.
1: <laughs> That's come out the wrong way entirely. But there we go.
0: Well, you can tell him that from us that the book we've ordered our second batch. Oh, so fantastic. I think there'll probably be another three or four batches before it's Christmas. Got some great stuff in it. So yeah. keep it up, Sam. Okay. And do you have a favourite Sam Neill movie? Uh
1: Uh, Have you ever seen a Sam Neill movie? Well, (laughs) I I rather famously uh, made a bit of a goose of myself because I admitted that I didn't remember him being in Jurassic Park. But um, my brilliant career, The Piano, uh, Sweet Country and Hunt for Wilder People are the ones that I think are just terrific movies. Well, you know, you not see, just because of him, but they're just wonderful movies. Well,
0: you see, the other day uh, in our six quick questions, Carol asked me, "It's Sam Neill's significant birthday this week. What's your favourite Sam Neill film?" And of course, I said "Death in Brunswick,"
1: which you've of probably not, have you seen it. Oh look, I, <laughs> I, I, yes, I, I, I just forgot about it. But, but "Death in Brunswick" and also uh, "Dean Spanley." If you haven't seen it, is is just the most. No, I haven't. That is, and I hadn't seen it either. Uh, in fact, my father told me about it, and uh, it's it, that is one of the world's most charming movies with the late Peter O'Toole in it as well. Just a terrific movie.
0: Well, you've given hope to all the romantics like myself out there that, you know, <laughs> through Twitter and
1: social media, you can you can actually meet a partner who is pretty decent. <laughs> well, I, I, I would just like to say we didn't actually meet on Twitter. I know this has become the, uh, the, the meme, war. but, uh, but uh, you know, maybe I should just leave it at that. But uh, <laughs> But we didn't, so...
0: Laura, we wish you all the best with the quarterly essay Follow the Leader. It is an outstanding piece of work and uh, I think incredibly timely and prescient and I don't think you realised obviously at the time. Or well, maybe you did, hiding behind that asperadistra of
1: yours that there was going to be a, let's not use the word coup, but let's <laughs> call it a coup. Yeah, I, sh- I should claim that it was foresight, but it wasn't. But uh, thank you for those generous comments.
0: It's lovely. And listeners, we are going to have uh, Laura stay back a bit after school and sign a few copies, and we'd love you to give us a buzz via all the links we'll provide later on in the program how you can obtain a copy with Laura Tingle's beautiful signature. She is one of our finest political journalists. She is, a, as I said, a pin-up of mine and Laura thank you for coming to the book pod thank you Cory it's been great fun that was Laura Tingle and we commend her quarterly essay to all of our potties and if you would like to win a copy just look in the show notes we'll have a signed copy and we have other signed copies as well if you'd like to purchase one just go click click and you'll come through to the bookshop and we can get a copy off as long as the stocks last with us and I would like to say congratulations to Karen Island Jenkin who was the lucky winner of the signed copy of Leanne Moriarty's Nine Perfect Strangers. Leanne was our very first guest on the book pod, and if you haven't heard that episode, episode one, do please go back and have a listen. And Karen emailed feedback at thebookpod.com.au and said to us, Hi, Corrie. I love the book pod and hope I'm the first to tell you so. It was excellent to hear Leanne's insights into her writing, particularly why she feels an Australian setting has translated well to international audiences. Kind regards, Karen. Thank you, Karen. It was a lovely note and the book is on its way to you. And now, Miss Jane, producer extraordinaire, Tell me we have some more correspondence, do we? We're only a baby show. Is anybody writing in? Is anyone
2: listening out there? Corrie, we had such a good response to episode one of the book pod, of course, as you mentioned with Leanne Moriarty. A lot of people, you can uh, check in with the show. We haven't actually spawned a book pod Facebook page yet. So at the moment, you can go to the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook page. Uh, Natalie Burke said, listening now to episode one. Fabulous, Corrie. Thank you. I look forward to listening to many, many more book pods. Uh, Linda Danvers, also also said listening while travelling between Jodhpur and Jaipur yesterday. Oh, we've made it to India, Jane! Wow, she's on <laughs> holidays. Loved it. Thanks, Cory. Will certainly recommend to my book group. And also Kelly Wilson via the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook page. I can't wait for the book pod. While I love Don't Shoot the Messenger, as an ex-Queenslander now living in New South Wales, I must admit I have never watched a game of AFL in my life. And while I could listen to Cory and Caro talk about anything all day, books are one of my favourite topics. So that was someone who was hotly anticipating the drop of episode one. So don't forget potties, we've
0: started our own book club of the airwaves, Jane. I hope you're reading the book. So love Last week, I told everybody uh, we'll be having a, a, a special bonus episode, probably late October, we reckon, and the topic or the book for discussion is called Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi. Home Fire by Camilla Shamsi, and it won the Women's Prize this year for fiction. And I think it's going to be a really terrific book to read. Now,
2: I know nothing about it, Corey. Can you just give me a tiny little sort of insight into what it's about? I'll go into my bookseller voice. (laughs) So, Camilla
0: Shamsi is a Pakistani. London-based author, and she's written a book. I think it's very contemporary in its themes and issues. And essentially, there are three siblings, adult siblings. Their parents have died, and they live in London. And the two oldest girls who are in their 20s are eminent academics, particularly the oldest one. The middle one is a very beautiful, very exotic, also studying as well. And the third is, the, is their brother, who is, I think, Jane, probably about 20 or 21, and he is a bit of a lost soul. And he finds a group of like-minded chaps down at the local soccer club. And it turns out that they are actually part of the Muslim Brotherhood. And everybody's worst fears are realized as he is seconded into uh, the whole kind of ISIS movement. It's a story of family love. It's high drama. There is a love story in this as well with the second uh, sibling, with the younger sister. And it's just a very beautiful book
2: so you can read Home Fire for our Book Club episode. And if you like it, you read it, or you perhaps dislike it and you'd like to have your say in the BookPod Book Club episode, you can actually record a little voice memo on your phone. Most people's smartphones have a little voice recorder. You can just hit record on that and then email that MP3 file to us, feedback at thebookpod.com.au. And by some editing magic, you'll actually be be able to be part of the show. You can also send your thoughts even if you don't. Want to send us your voice via that email feedback at thebookpod.com.au. And Jane, now I have the
0: plug of the week, which is this week's book I'd like everybody to have a look at if they wanted to. This is the tip for reading, and this is a fiction work. Last last week we did a cookbook. So this one is called Bitter Orange by Claire Fuller. I'll actually quote Kirkus Reviews, who say it would call it an intoxicating, unsettling masterpiece. And Claire Fuller's main character is the unmarried and rather frumpish Frances Jellicoe. And Frances uh, is a studier of old gardens and the planting and design of old gardens. And she's assigned to research the gardens of this dilapidated old English country mansion. And she becomes absolutely infatuated with the couple next door, Cara, who has a very complex backstory, and the very attractive Peter, her partner. And so at first, we feel quite hopeful about this friendship, but it actually becomes more destructive and incredibly claustrophobic with life-changing consequences. So it's a bit of a psychological thriller, we'd call that in the genre of that, Jane. So with
2: gardening mixed in. You had me at gardening. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I had you at gardening. I love that. It's thirty two ninety nine. Bitter Orange by Claire Fuller and you can find
2: it at a good bookshop near you. Or via the links in the show notes. And if I can just urge everyone to uh, rate and review the book pod because we are a new podcast and if you can uh, jump onto iTunes or whatever podcasting platform you actually listen on, it really does help other people to find the show and who knows, you know, might even hit the, uh, the iTunes chart, And then my head would get really big if that <laughs> happened.
0: <laughs> if I got onto the iTunes chart, oh, I think I'd cry with joy. The next book pod we're having is with an old mate of mine, Charlie Happel. Uh, Charlie was is a former sports writer with The Age and he's still writing. He's a beautiful writer. And he's got together with the professional golfer, Mike Clayton. And the two of them have put this hilarious new book together, Preferred Lies and Other True Golf Stories. And Charlie says that I had something to do with this because he was in the bookshop a couple of years ago. And I said, gosh, Charlie, I'd give my right arm for a really good golf book. So we're going into the sporting genre, but stick with us because it is a fascinating story of how two co-authors work together, the stories they found, and their backstories both are very interesting. So I hope you'll join us. If you have any, if you want a golf tip from Mike, you can send it in if you want. So that's the end of the show, Jane, today. And thank you to our producer, of course, the lovely Jane Neild. And thank you to everyone for your best wishes and your feedback, and thanks for listening. We look forward to your company next time. Happy reading, everyone.